It is National No Dirty Dishes Day. Dishes! 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 I'm gonna do those dishes. Nobody likes dirty dishes. Tonight I do the dishes. Will you at least do the dishes? 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 No way! If you have a sink full, make sure it's empty by the time you go to bed. Fine, I'll do the dishes! Showtime! Right, Chia, it's your KC Moa Show, baby. What's the word, Kansas City? A happy Thursday to the KC morning. Who's on the show today? We recap the week that was, I guess, the past couple weeks that were. Salisa Kalakal with KCUR, Kansas City's NPR station. She had some just amazing reporting the last few weeks, and so I want to talk about it. Get you caught up. We're intellectuals on this your KC Morning Show. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do, Kansas City. I love you. Back in your feeds tomorrow, it is a good day to be a Kansas Cityan. Absolutely. It's just what you do. We'll see ya in the morning. Bye. Greetings, Hartzell. Search the force. And a tremor I have felt. It was you. Your ego just busted a planet. The KC Morning Show. Back on your KC Morning Show, back by breaking news. Yeah, you see what I did there? Salisa Kalakal, she is the Missouri government and politics reporter at KCUR 89.3 NPR in Kansas City. And Salisa, I'm not kidding, she has been breaking all the news. The work you've been doing here recently and since Jump Street has been exceptional, my friend. Here to break down all the news, it's Salisa Kalakal. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we jump into all the reporting you've been into, I'm just kind of curious, how do you juggle so many different stories and projects at the same time? Because we're going to get into this, but everything you've been reporting on, it's so detailed. It is not only lived experience, but it's facts only. And you got that times like three or four sometimes, you know? So how do you do this? Um, That is a great question. I kind of just take every day as it comes. There are some stories that Maybe just take me a day to report. Like if I'm, you know, talking about what happened at city council, that's usually something I write in a day. And then I kind of like split up my day where if I'm not working on a daily story, I'll work on maybe some longer term projects. So I'll reach out to people for interviews. I'll go through documents. I'll do a lot of writing, a lot of reporting, you know, meeting people where they are. So every day I kind of just take every day as it comes. And I've kind of had to learn how to juggle like longer term projects and making sure that, you know, I don't forget about them and always making sure I'm reaching out to the right people. And then if there's a day where there's breaking news or there's something I need to cover immediately, like on city council, I'll make that my task for the day. But I'm not perfect at it. There are definitely days where like I don't get to everything on my to do list, but I try my best. 
Well, then let's break it down, my friend. Let's start with this. City manager Brian Platt, he's had better days recently between calls for him to resign. Also, we've got like allegations of like spying on city employees. So, Salisa, why don't you just explain how did we get here? What is this? I'll start with the Meta project. So in the Northland, we have this huge data center campus that's going to be built in the Northland. It's actually owned by Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook. So we have this project. It was greenlit by the city council last year. And when we have big projects like this, the civil rights office within City Hall, they actually oversee the development to make sure that the developer is using minority businesses, certain amount of women-owned businesses, and just making sure that the developers are following city rules. And the former head of the Civil Rights Department, her name is Andrea Dorch. She kind of saw things that were red flags to her with this project. For instance, this project didn't have any goals for minority and women business participation. And that's kind of a standard rule that all development is supposed to have a certain percentage of minority businesses and minority contractors and women-owned contractors. And Andrea Dorch realized that the city somehow allowed Meta to kind of get away with not following these requirements. And she alleges, and this is also in a city report that she published, that when she tried to sound the alarm, when she tried to get city officials like the city manager to essentially hold Meta accountable and make sure that they're following these rules, she says that the city manager and a few other city officials basically told her it's fine don't do your normal job duties just let this company you know do what they want and then actually a day after she wrote this report she says that the city manager's office basically asked her to resign and the reason that they gave is that they said that andrea was violating the city's residency requirement so basically you know all city employees have to live within city limits they allege that she wasn't living in city limits she says that she does I've seen documents pinning her to an address in Kansas City. But overall, she felt that she was essentially pressured into resigning. And she feels that, you know, being asked to resign was a form of retaliation and that the city manager's office was just trying to essentially get her out of City Hall for sounding the alarm on such a big project. If I can, before we get into the truly explosive Parts. I mean, this <laughs> yeah. whole thing is something else, but like this next part is just, oh my God. Before we get to that though, her claims, were they substantiated? Yes. Did she have some facts to back up what she was saying in her statements and in the report? And also, who is it that's supposed to be overall overseeing DEI initiatives that stipulated in projects like what Meta had up north? So it's really the civil rights office that has, you know, the oversight over things like that. And by that extension, Andrea Dorch was the person responsible for making sure that companies or developers, you know, followed those DEI rules, making sure they followed city rules in general. So this isn't like she was some sort of whistleblower. This was like actually her job. Yeah, this was her job. So when she was trying to do her job, she says that the city manager's office basically was like, don't do this. It's okay. We're going to let them, you know, not necessarily follow these DEI rules with minority contractors. And she put a lot of the evidence, a lot of like her experience uh, with this project in this report. And she gave the report to kind of other organizations involved with the Civil Rights Office, like the Fairness and Construction Board. And so other people were able to kind of verify what was in the report. She's also 
showing me emails and just other documents showing or reflecting her experience at City Hall. And she says in general that as a Black woman, being at City Hall as a department head was really difficult. She kind of always felt that she was receiving pushback when she asked for something or when she asked for more resources or more funding. She does describe kind of this culture of fear and intimidation are the words she used that kind of disproportionately affects people of color who work at City Hall. So let's get to the next part. And if you're listening in the car, buckle up, because here we go. So Lisa, what happened after this? What happened next? So what happened next is a city official actually sent me a copy of an invoice, pretty much showing that the city essentially hired a private investigator to follow Andrea Dorch for about two weeks in January. And the cost of all of these services to follow her around, to reimburse these private investigators for the hours they worked, for the miles that they traveled, about $11,000. And it's crazy because Andrea didn't know that she was being surveilled or that she was being followed. But she told me that during this time period in January when it took place, that she had this feeling that someone was following her. But people around her were like, no one's following you. You know, that's crazy. That would never happen. But then she was shocked to find out that it was true. And she found the fact that the city would surveil her to be retaliatory. The city says the reason why they hired a private investigator was to actually investigate if she does live in city limits. That's their justification for, you know, why they hired a private investigator to follow her around. And what was that number again? How much did it cost? About $11,000. Jesus Christ. I quote tweeted this and just said, wow. I mean, and I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Wow. Um, has there been yeah, any, crazy. any comment from the city manager, the mayor's office? This is explosive. So I would think that they would yeah. want to get some sort of something. Was there any anything that was given to you? They determined that she did not live in Kansas City. And they point to this property in Lee's Summit that Andrea does own. Public documents show that she owns it. But Andrea has told me that that property is essentially just an investment property. She's fixing it up. It's not actually her primary place of residency and that she does truly live in Kansas City. But I guess the city manager's office did not accept that explanation or even really give Andrea like the opportunity to explain why she owns a property that's not in Kansas City, because they determined that Andrea was in violation of the residency requirement, that ultimately she had to step down. And there are really strict rules in the city charter that say an employee has to live within Kansas City. If they end up not living in Kansas City anymore, you know, they have to resign from their position. So that's kind of the reasoning the city manager's office used to essentially have Andrea resign. Andrea does not agree, but that's kind of the city's line. Whoo, boy. And I apologize for putting you on the spot if you don't know the answer to this, but didn't, no, that's okay. didn't the head of the Kansas City Transit Authority, wasn't mm -hmm. there some type of addendum that changed the residency requirements for him? Because I don't believe he lived in KC limits initially. Is that true? Can you confirm that? Yeah, so that is true. So Frank White third, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, it was found that he didn't live in Kansas City when he was appointed to head the Kansas City Area Transportation Authority. And then the city council actually passed an ordinance 
essentially waiving the requirement for him and being like, oh, like you don't actually have to live in Kansas City. Actually, Kathy Nelson, who is the head of the Sporting Commission, she also received like a similar waiver. Um, I will say the one caveat there is that technically they're not city employees. Technically, they work with an organization that is closely related to the city and closely works for the city. So there's a residency requirement for city employees, like people who work at City Hall, and that's very strict and there's no there's really no room for a waiver. You just have to follow the rules. And that's where Andrea applies. But for people like Frank White the third and Kathy Nelson, because they work with organizations that are connected to the city, maybe receive a little bit of city funding. They also have a residency requirement, but they're able to waive it with city council approval. A differentiation that I just wanted to make, the rules for people who work in City Hall are much stricter than if you're just an agency that receives city funding. Does that make sense? No, it does. It absolutely does. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking of the actual title of these orgs, you know, the Kansas City Transit Authority, the Kansas City Sports Commission. I don't know. I'm just, oh, yeah. just going to throw that out there. All right, let's move <laughs> on, Salisa, to this because you had some excellent reporting also on the Kansas City resolution to declare KC as a safe haven for gender affirming care. It seems like, at least at the state level in Jeff City, they have just targeted in on minorities disproportionately, mm-hmm. including our LGBTQIA plus folks. Can you break this down? Does it have any sort of standing, especially when you've got a Missouri attorney general who, you know, seems to just get off on this? So what is this and how much teeth does it hold? That's a great question. I will say that this is a resolution, not an ordinance, and resolutions generally have less teeth than an actual ordinance. But the city had to be really careful about how they worded this language. Because we have a history of attorney generals suing Kansas City and St. Louis for going against what happens at the state level. But basically, the city resolution says that city employees and city agencies specifically won't prioritize enforcing any laws that might penalize or criminalize someone for providing or for seeking out gender-affirming care. Let's say the city health department has a clinic and someone goes there seeking gender-affirming care and the doctor who's at the clinic that day meets with this patient and talks about gender-affirming care and talks with their parents about it. Under this resolution, essentially the director would not be required to report it to the prosecutor or report it to the state and essentially get these people in trouble. So it's very narrow in that it only applies to city employees and to city agencies, but the city kind of had to write it that way in order to avoid litigation to the best of its ability. And it actually passed the same week that the Missouri legislature passed a bill essentially banning gender-affirming care for minors. It's headed to the governor's desk for signature, and he's very, very likely to sign it into law. And so that would mean that Kansas City's resolution, our city health department, and maybe any other agencies, they would be directed to essentially, I call it like looking the other way. They're not going to go out and enforce this law. They're not going to go out and penalize people for seeking gender-affirming care. So that's kind of what the term safe haven applies to. So it's narrow, but it's narrow because we just don't have the authority to go further than that. It's still possible that the attorney general could sue Kansas City for doing this. 
we'll have to wait and see. But that's basically what that legislation breaks down into. Talking to the LGBTQ Commission of Kansas City, do they have any next steps planned? Or I guess, what are they hoping that some next steps might be? Yeah, so they're hoping that the counties, so Jackson County, Clay County, Platte County, they're hoping that they also adopt similar pieces of legislation. That way we kind of have a metro-wide safe haven instead of just a Kansas City, Missouri safe haven. They also hope that the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department also adopts similar language. And this is important, too, because if this is signed into law, then it would empower police departments to go out and arrest people for participating in seeking out or providing gender-affirming care. And the reason why Kansas City's own resolution doesn't apply to the police department is because the police department is controlled by the state of Missouri and not, you know, our city council. And so police officers are not considered city employees. The police department is not considered a city agency. So it would actually take the board of police commissioners adopting very similar language and applying it to the police department. Mayor Lucas has said that he does plan on asking the board to adopt a similar resolution. I believe the Board of Police Commissioners is meeting in a few weeks, so we'll see we'll see what happens there. But yeah, the hope of the LGBTQ Commission is to make sure that the other jurisdictions that make up our Kansas City Metro on the Missouri side adopt similar language. That way we have a safe haven across our metro and not just not just in Kansas City, Missouri. Although that was a really big first step. They're really happy that the city council did that. So let's wrap it up with this, Elisa, a Kansas City apartment complex that Mm -hmm. has had so many violations, mold, pest, collapsed ceiling. Let's let's talk about this for a second. I guess, how did you even get tipped off on the story? Were these the tenants coming to you and saying, Elisa, this is Can you help us? Is that kind (laughs) of how you got this lead? So it was actually a lawyer who told me about this issue. The lawyers at the Heartland Center for Jobs and Freedom, they work a lot with tenants uh, in eviction court, just in housing in general. And so one of the lawyers contacted me, basically let me know that they're starting to see issues at this apartment complex called Stonegate. And that's how it pretty much got on my radar. And this lawyer connected with tenants there because he was representing them in eviction court. And he noticed time and time again that these tenants, they were being sued for eviction, but, you know, they would come to court and my landlord didn't provide me with safe housing. You know, my landlord didn't fix any of these maintenance issues. Lawyers got involved. Now there's an official class action lawsuit filed against the apartment complex by a group of former tenants who used to live there. Records that I looked at showed just hundreds of violations, hundreds of complaints to the city about just awful living conditions. I mean, ceilings that are collapsing, mold, sewage backing up, no heat in the winter, no AC in the summer. And through it all, the property manager just didn't really take tenants' complaints seriously. There was no formal system for even filing maintenance complaints, which meant that there was no system for following up. The lawyer also told me, and this is in the lawsuit itself, that conditions at this apartment complex were so bad that the city actually revoked the property manager's rental license two times. And that only happens when there's so many violations and you haven't done anything to address any of them. And yet the apartment complex is still renting to tenants. It's particularly egregious, I would say, because this apartment complex receives low-income housing tax credits. And that basically means that 
they're getting money from the government so that they can provide, you know, extremely affordable housing to low-income families who need it. So a lot of the families were on Section 8 housing vouchers. A lot of the families are immigrants or they're Black or people of color. And they just, I mean, they went through like a horrible, horrible experience. Some of their children got sick because the conditions were so bad. Some families lost a lot of their belongings because the ceiling collapsed over their stuff. I mean, it's it's bad. That's why a group of former tenants came together to file this class action lawsuit against the property manager, basically saying that the property manager's neglect allowed the tenants to live in squalor. That lawsuit is slowly moving through the court system right now. We'll see what ends up happening. So what kind of protections currently exist for tenants? How is it that somebody, how is it that a landlord with so many violations can even be allowed to still rent to folks? That class action lawsuit, I mean, it shouldn't have even had to come to this. Let's say that some of these folks have the opportunity and they have the ability to get out. There are some apartment complexes or some landlords, property management groups that will deny tenants based off of their source of income, which in this case would be Mm -hmm. the government assistance. So what kind of protections, what do we got? So we do have a tenant bill of rights in Kansas City, and that actually passed a few years ago, thanks to organizing by KC Tenants. And we also have a program called Healthy Homes. And the two of them together, basically, tenants have a right to safe and habitable, you know, healthy housing. There are rules that landlords do have to follow when they provide rental housing with the city, and they have to register their property with the city. And some of these rules are you have to make sure that, you know, your tenants have running water. You have to make sure that your tenants have air conditioning, that they have heat because it gets really cold in the winter. Making sure that structurally that the apartment is sound, making sure that tenants don't have bugs. I mean, we as tenants, we do have a right to live in apartments free of pests, free of roaches, free of mice. This is all like kind of in city law, in city code. I think the problem is that, and this is something that the lawyer said enforcement could be better. So healthy homes, which is under the health department, inspectors will go and they'll do just inspections of a property that has received complaints. They'll take notes. They'll see if anything in the property is actually violating any of these rules. And if they are violating these rules, then they'll go to the property manager and say, hey, your tenant's living with roaches or your tenant is living with water that backs up and you know they can't use their shower. You have to fix it. And then they give the property manager a certain amount of time to fix it. But I think the issue is that oftentimes the property manager will do the little fixes, but they won't do enough to actually make the home safe for years. They'll fix the problem just a little bit. That way, you know, they can get the city off their back, but they won't fix it in a way that actually truly guarantees safe housing for the tenants who live there. So that's kind of the gap that I've noticed a lot. And I will say the city, the city right now doesn't have super strong laws around holding bad landlords accountable. I mean, we have this healthy homes program, but anecdotally, what I've heard from a lot of tenants is that a lot of landlords just aren't held accountable. They'll do the little fixes. They'll cooperate the bare minimum that they have to with the city. And then once the city is like, you know, you fix the problems, you can keep your permit, you can keep doing what you're doing, then they can continue operating. And so I think I think there's room to have better enforcement. And I think there's room to have 
stronger laws in place. I mean, it's possible for Kansas City to actually pass a law about source of income discrimination, but, you know, that hasn't passed yet. But that is something that city council candidates right now, especially those endorsed by Casey Tennant's power, that's something that they want to see. And that's something that maybe we could see come to fruition in the next couple of years. But yeah, that would be my answer. I think enforcement in this area is maybe lacking is what a lot of advocates say. And you had a great, essentially a companion piece to the original piece you did because you outlined how to check on the complaints for landlords like this. Maybe there are some preemptive ways that we can, you know, at least see what we're getting into. So can you break that down before we get out of here? So there are some ways where let's say you've lived somewhere for a while and you're noticing problems and maybe you want to see, does my landlord have a history of allowing tenants to live in poor conditions? The city has a tool called Parcel Viewer. And if you just Google Kansas City, Missouri Parcel Viewer, click on the link, just input your address or really any address. I'll do this for like random addresses sometimes. Put in the address and then it'll pop up on the side like a bunch of information. It'll tell you what council district the address is in. It'll tell you when your trash day is. It'll also tell you all of the essentially 311 complaints that the address has received. And this could range from property violations, or it could range over to, you know, I have mold in my house, or I have pests in my apartment, or I have roaches, or my AC is not working. And that's where you can really see the history of a certain rental property in Kansas City. This applies to really any building. It doesn't just have to be rental properties, but for the purpose of checking on rental properties, this is a really good tool for that. And then you can also kind of see Has the city done any inspections on the property? What has been the resolution to these complaints? Are they resolved? Are there a lot open right now? You're a tenant and you lost heat in the winter and maybe you want to see, oh, like, I wonder if other tenants have lost heat. You can go and use this tool and see, oh, okay, three other tenants filed a 311 complaint about not having heat. And then maybe you can organize with your fellow tenants. And that's a right too. We do have a right to organize with other tenants and maybe demand that your property manager, you know, fix the issue or do something of that nature. That's one way to investigate your landlord, as I like to call it. Also, KC Tenants, our citywide tenant union, they have a great kind of running list of a slumlord master list is what they call it. If you go on the KC Tenants website, I believe, I think you'll be able to access this. Or if not, you can also click on the link in the article that I wrote about this. You can click on this link and it's a Google Doc. And it's extremely informative and there's a lot of information about just really bad either property management companies or just bad landlords in general. And they talk about if they filed any evictions and how many. They talk about any issues that tenants have been experiencing. I just really wanted to write that piece to maybe empower folks to do their own little investigating. Maybe it'll make people feel better knowing that they can kind of look into their landlord. And if you're someone who maybe you're looking to move and you want to make sure that you're moving to that has a history of being safe, has a history of taking tenants' complaints seriously, you can kind of use this tool in your search and you can input the address of a place you're considering. Maybe they haven't had any 311 complaints or maybe they did, but it was, you know, 20 years ago. You know, then maybe that can make you feel better about applying there and choosing to ultimately live there. I hope it's useful for people. I hope people reference it. And if anyone who's listening wants KCUR or, you know, would be interested in me looking into your landlord, 
maybe they do have a bad history in Kansas City. I would definitely love to look into it. You can always reach out to me. Yeah. One more time. What is that? It's Parcel Review. Parcel Viewer. Parcel Viewer. We couldn't call it, I don't know, Tenant Quality Control or Landlord Lookup. <laughs> what the hell is Parcel Review? Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Salisa Kalakal. <laughs> It's been a busy few days, a busy few weeks. I know you dropped your info a few seconds ago, but one more time, where can folks find you? Drop the handles. The floor is yours. So you can find me at KCUR893. My email is Salisa, that's spelled C as in cat, E-L-I-S-A at KCUR.org. Or you can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Salisa Mia, and that's M-I-A. Yeah, catch me on there. Send me a DM whenever. Send me an email whenever. Uh, and I'll be happy to chat with you. Salisa Kalakal, thank you so much, my friend. You were so much appreciated. Your reporting is necessary. Will you come back on the show and uh, get us learned up? Yeah, that sounds good. I'm out of family. I don't mind. Start it up, start it up.
the KC Morning Show.